A man walks into one of the busiest subway stations in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., a very highly educated city in our country. Uh, the majority is with at least bachelor's, probably master's degrees. And he opens up his violin case. He pulls out his violin and he starts to play. He plays for 45 minutes and he's playing the work of the one, the only, Johann Sebastian Bach. 45-minute concerts. It was estimated that over, well over 1,100 people would walk through this subway hearing him play Johann Sebastian Bach. The man recounted what happened, what he saw as he was playing. He saw, he saw businessmen hurrying on. Maybe a few slowed their pace. One child a little probably three or four-year-old child stopped and listened only to be pushed further by mom, hurrying to get to the next area. One man stood and leaned up against the wall, but only for a few seconds. After his 45-minute concert, he put his violin worth $3.5 million dollars back into the case filled with $35. Joshua Bell would then get in a taxi where he would go to the local area where he had sold out tickets of his concert that night, the average ticket being well over $100, where he would play a concert that night. Think about that for a moment. A man in a subway, $3.5 million violin. Can't even count $3.5 million, right? And you're talking about that expensive, $35, and one little boy, one little boy realized the beauty of that concert. Now, we can get super cynical in here and go, well, you know, it's them darn kids on their phone hurrying past, and that's why they missed the beauty of this concert. We can get super silly and cynical and explain it away that way, but we all know that's not true. We know that you and I miss the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of God each and every day so often because we are so hurrying to live our lives. And man, moms, I know we're celebrating Mother's Day. And listen, I know that the pastor handbook says you've got to do this one, right? It's Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day are the three you've just got to nail, right? I just know that's in the handbook. I know there's a class in seminary I probably slept through. And I know you are used to being the $3.5 million Joshua Bell playing a concert. And no one noticing. But moms, I also know the real truth. That you're not concerned with you being uplifted this morning. You're concerned with the gospel being uplifted this morning. 
And that's what I intend to do. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead, grab them, let's get to work. Uh, we here at this church, man, we work through the text. Um, we dive into the text. We want to tear apart the text. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. It's going to be up on the screens. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. It's chapter 3 of 4 of Paul's walk through Philippians. And what we're going to look at this morning, what we're going to look at so very carefully is I think a conversation we so often have and it's become so rote to us because either we're too busy or we think that church is so same old, same old. I know what the preacher's gonna tell me. He's gonna tell me a dirty, filthy, rotten sinner and the only hope I have is in Christ. Been there, done that, heard that preacher. I'm here because mom had me be here this morning and I want to shake us of that this morning. Because that is the message, and it is a beautiful message. And church, it is our only message. There should be an amen somewhere. So let me say that again. That death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ is our only message. All right, so we're all in agreement there then that this is what the church's purpose is on this earth, is to proclaim God's word, call people to come to know Christ. The church exists for one purpose and one purpose only, to know Christ and make Christ known, to go therefore and make disciples. Anything past that purview is extra on top. That the church, regardless of what the culture is doing, says we are going to plant our feet in the making of disciples. That's it. That's what we're called to do. And that's what Paul's ministry was so about. Think about all the men Paul personally discipled. Titus, Timothy, Barnabas, Apollos. So beautiful. And Paul is going to tackle a tough subject this morning. Works and salvation. And so we're going to dive into that. We're not going to mess around. We're going to dive into that. But before we do, we're going to do the most important thing we can do. We're going to pray that the Lord does a mighty work here this morning. Uh, Miracles belong to God and God alone. And the greatest miracle and the miracle we celebrate is the miracle of salvation. And we're going to pray that God does a miracle this morning. So I want to invite you, uh, if you're able, join me in your knees as a place of where we should be constantly before an almighty God. Would you join me? Father, I know, I know what I've worked through, battled through this week, that I'm just so unworthy to bring this message. God, I am a human instrument who has failed, failed often. He's failed more times than I can count, even within the past hour. But God, here we are. God, you've positioned me here for a specific purpose, and that's to preach your word. And God, that's what I intend to do this morning. I want to preach your word, not my opinions. God, I pray that you will honor the preaching of your word this morning. Now, church, I ask that you also pray for me. Pray that I'll be helpful. Pray that I'll decrease. Pray that I'll preach with fear and trembling this morning.
Now, church, I ask that you pray for yourself. Pray that your mind will be open, that your heart will be open. Pray that God will remove distractions. And pray that God does a miracle in your own heart this morning. Father God, we are here for you. We worship you and we love you. I pray these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. You may have a seat. So we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11 here this morning. Um, But I wanted to read to you just verses 4 through 6 and kind of give you some background into what is happening. Uh, Philippians 3, 4 through 6 says this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has the reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisees, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So I wanted to read this to you because I want to give you a background into what we're about ready to talk about. What we're going to walk through is how can I have confidence before God that I am counted right? And so what we do is we live in our human minds and we think I am good enough to stand before God. And so what Paul is doing in four through six is he's saying, all right, let's compare resumes for a moment. And then so he starts circumcised on the eighth day, commanded Genesis chapter 17. And maybe some of you are like, all right, I'm good. I've got that one down. I was born a Hebrew, ooh, into the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin, uh, there was 12 tribes in Israel. Ten rebelled. And they went their own way. And two, Judah and Benjamin decided to stay in the Davidic covenant. They stayed. They were the best of the best of the best of the Jewish people. To the law of Pharisee. I nailed the law. I was so good. I was good of the good of the goods. I was the best of the best when it came to my own works, my own righteousness, my own goodness. I was so good. And not only that, but I was the best Pharisee. Paul is saying, if you think you're good enough to stand before God, show me your resume and let's compare. Then he says this, verse 7. Is where it gets fun. But, conjunction, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You think you're good? I want to tell you is what Paul is saying. If anyone should be at the front of line to heaven based on works, it would be me. I would be the best of the best. And guess what I find out? I'm at the end of the line. So what Paul says in verse 7, if you notice, whatever gain I had, I count it as lost. Paul is using a very um, banking type of term. I thought my works were putting, getting money into my account, putting me more in the black. I thought all of my good deeds was gaining me favor with God. But what it was actually doing was putting me further and further and further in debt. So that's what he means by I count it as loss negative, debt. Why? 
Because here's the truth this morning, church. This is what we need to get around. If you're going to leave one thing, and you know one thing, it's simply this this morning. Here you go. The hardest people to reach with the gospel are the morally upright people. The people who think I am good enough to stand on my own based on the fact that I'm a good person. Aren't you glad you came on this Mother's Day, right? And so I want to walk through that with you because here's the deal. The law, the goodness, the good works cannot save you. So let me just put it to you, and I know, listen, I know that this is going to strike a chord with some of y'all this morning. If we follow nine of the Ten Commandments perfectly, we're going to still miss the most important commandment. Love God. If our whole culture followed the second commandment to the 10th commandment perfectly, we put them up on the schools and everyone followed them to the T, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Because one country already tried that. It was called Israel. And guess what happened? They crucified Christ. Why? Because they didn't know God. What's the point of talking about morality if you don't know Jesus? Who cares? It's pointless. It's a waste of breath. If we're talking about doing right, doing right, doing right, we don't talk about Jesus. Man, it's anathema. My heart bleeds because I I listen to the discussions and I'm like, we're not talking about Jesus. We're not talking about the gospel. So yeah, we can talk about don't murder, don't steal, don't do this, don't covet, don't cheat on your wife, all this stuff. But without Jesus, it's nothing. Without the atoning work of God, it is anathema. And so how are we accepted by God? Here's how we're accepted by God. Think about who God is for a moment. He is perfect. So if you were to even reason with me that you've done just one thing wrong in your life, you by definition are imperfect, right? That's how definitions work. You're either perfect or imperfect. You're guilty or you're innocent. Your good deed can't undo the fact that you're imperfect, right? It doesn't make sense. You're still, you're still imperfect. You're just imperfect with a good deed. So what has to happen Luther calls this an alien righteousness. A righteousness far beyond you, a perfect righteousness, has to then be imputed, placed upon you to declare you as justified, counted right before God. So how does this work? For all who are in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. So when you stand before God, for those of you that are in Christ, you are seen as though you have lived Christ's life. And that's what he counts righteous. Not your deeds. When he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, he's talking to the imputed righteousness of the servanthood of God, of Christ himself. And that's the only thing, that's the only ground you can stand on before an all-holy perfect God. This is why we preach Christ and him crucified Sunday, and we never, ever grow tired of this. This is why we don't preach preach law and morality, because guess what? I know, can't measure up. 
Can't do it, not good enough. And I, look, I know what you're in here. You're in here saying, ah, yeah, but you've been seminary. You're a church brat. All this stuff, I can promise you, you spend 10 minutes with me, you're going to know I'm not perfect. You're going to know it. It's obvious. And that's why every time I come here and I go, man, God, I, I'm not worthy. It's so wonderful to sit behind the text and say, this is what God's word says. Because it's Christ who makes me right. It's his authority. And I want to ask you this morning, if you think you can stand before God being good enough, are you good enough to stand before a perfect God? Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Have you ever thought about what does Paul mean to know Christ? Does he mean to know facts and figures about Christ? Well, let us look at the text together so you don't think that this is me. I want to know Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is a really interesting, important title for you and I to understand here this morning. So what are these three words? Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, in 21st century, we have first and last names, Scott Hutchison. Okay, and so what that tells, it kind of tells you my personal name and my family name. Before this, it was Scott, the son of Paul. My dad's name is actual Paul. I'm not talking about this Paul. Okay, that's what it used to be. In some cultures, it would be uh, your name and then what you do. So like Scott the pastor or Scott the janitor, depending on what Seth and I are dealing with that week, right? So that's kind of how that works, right, is the name and the title. Very similar to, we do this in our culture, by the way, what's your name and usually what's the next question? What do you do, right? Because your title, what you do is connected to who you are. So let's talk about these three things, Christ, Jesus, and Lord, for just a moment. Christ, Christos, Messiah, anointed one. The Messiah in the Old Testament would be the one who would come and he would destroy evil in the world. They were thinking Jesus would come and destroy Rome. Isn't it funny how tiny government is in God's culture? He just is like, you're so small. You're like a little ant. Rome is so tiny to me. America's so tiny to me because I am so much bigger than that. And that's what the cross is all about, is it not? That Christ went after the really big one, sin and death that had no solution. That's the Christos. Yesu. Yesu is the transliterated word from the, uh, from the Hebrew of Yeshua. Yeshua means Yahweh saves, God saves. So what we see is names were very important. The meanings of names are very important. Like I actually think my name means a dude from Scotland. So um, not as important in our culture, but in that culture, yeah, it's really, really invigorating. Um, in that culture, it meant something. Especially when you read the Old Testament, read what people's names mean. You're going to see what their names mean interconnect into their story. And that's what the Bible usually brings out. And so Jesus means Yahweh saves. How is God going to save? God will always save through Jesus. 
He was the plan from the beginning. That's Jesus. So Christos Jesus. And then Paul says, my Lord. Lord, Kyrios, master, commander. The guy in charge. Whenever he says jump, I say how high. Whenever he says, I say go where. We use the same thing in old English. You know what I mean? The butlers would say, thank you, my Lord. It's a very similar type of term. It it, it literally means the commander. And so what we see here is I count everything as loss, everything, all my good works, everything that I could ever boast in is nasty, disgusting compared to the worth of knowing Christ. How do you know Christ? If you're young in here and you're trying to figure out what the heck I'm supposed to do tomorrow, you're like, man, if, I, if God would just tell me his will, and I hear so many people talking about how do I know God's will, and I say, how is your quiet time going? You cannot know God's will apart from God's word. God will reveal his will for your life through his word. It's a big book. Start reading. Just start reading and ask God to open up what he would have you say. Friends, we do not put experiences over the word of God. Experiences always come under the word of God. Well, I had this vision. Well, great. Let's test it against the word of God. Because that's how God works in his economy is he says, you want to know me? You got to know my word. And by the way, that still means Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Just letting you all know, we have not unhitched that from, the old te- from our theology. You can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. God has revealed himself to you in his word. I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. This is a fun word. Um, the guys are really going to enjoy this word. The ladies might be like, hmm. Um, and I know I'm in mixed company, so I'm going to try my best to describe this to you. This would be a very similar term, and it might not have the same effect as it would if I used an expletive this morning, but it's that strong of a word. It's supposed to be an attention grabbing. You need to understand how worthless your work is on your own account, and he uses this word rubbish. The King Jimmy version uses the word dung. Let me tell you what this word is. The word is scubula. And what scubula is, is so we think it's only one time in the New Testament and in the whole Bible, and it's right here. Scubula is a combination of two words. Skuosis, which means dog, and ubla, which means leftover. Let your mind go. Dog leftover, right? So it's a very, very intense word. Now, think about it for just a moment. Just think about it. When Paul's writing this, dogs were not cute little fluffy that you took on like a, put them on TV and said, no, to be judged, little cute fluffy that's been well-groomed. No, these were nasty, disgusting trash animals. They'd eat dead carcasses. They'd pick through the trash. That's how dogs were viewed. It would be very similar to how most of us, and again, sorry, this doesn't lend well to you. Most of us view rats disgusting trash creatures, right? And so think about it. Paul is saying your good works on your own is like rat poop. 
So here's why I bring this out. And you're like, why are you being so shocking and bringing this out? Because I want to share with you, the Bible speaks heavily and very strongly against those who think they could achieve salvation on their own works. Because what that does is it lends you into this thing, I am good enough and I don't need God. Isaiah says, your good works are like filthy rags. Go look up what that word means. I'm not going to do it this morning. I'm not preaching Isaiah. But again, I don't know of a stronger language in all the Bible than it's speaking against salvation by works alone. And so, so then what we see is it is rubbish, useless, pointless, disgusting, unneeded. How does this play out in your personal life? How are you like, how is this helping me? Because what you're telling me is all my works are pointless and meaningless. I'm going to say yes. And I want to share with you, I just want to share with you what I personally walked through this week. And I don't know if this is going to help you or hurt you, but I I really want to tell you this story. I was walking through this and I was trying to understand rubbish and how Paul's using rubbish. And Molly and I, for those of you who know who Molly is, great. If you don't know who she is, she's, I'll tell you later. Um, we usually have a night where we go and we go on a Pinterest and we try to make something really cool and then kind of talk together and share with each other what God's doing in our lives and call it date night or whatever you call it. And so, yeah, I, yeah, it's beautiful. And so uh, I tell her, I was like, ah, uh, it's going to be a rough date night for us because I'm not sitting comfortable in this message. And bless her heart, she says, let's just skip dinner. Let's go to a coffee shop and let's work through this. So we go to Crave Coffee, and if you don't know Crave Coffee, it's a cool little hipster joint. Um, love it. And we sit down, and she's working through the International Mission Board stuff. And I'm working through this, and I'm, I get to this passage, and I tell her, I says, I don't know how to preach this. I says, I've, I've run out of gas, and I don't know what to say about this this morning to help people. And she says to me, it sounds like you're leaning on your own understanding and on your own works. Well, thanks for the encouragement, right? I mean, come on. She says to me, she says, maybe this is more of an object lesson for you than it is for anyone else who's going to listen. That you have no power, but God does. And you need to preach the text and not worry about them. Wouldn't you all love my date life, right? So I want to tell you this morning, and I I tell you that story not to, look, I'm not looking for y'all to email me and say, you're great. Um, I tell you that story to tell you this. I know a lot of you in here are are looking outside these walls, looking at a world that is hell-bent on destroying itself. I know you've got family and friends who don't want anything to do with the gospel, and you're like, what do I do? How do we do this? What are we going to do? What is this whole deal? And my answer to you is to tell them to know Christ, and the only way they know Christ is from your lips of saying, this is the word of God, and there is no other answer. Let me say that again. There is no other answer. Not one. And anytime we try to move past the word of God and say, ah, we're just going to use this kind of as a moment we have reached an area of rubbish. 
verse 9 through 11. And I want to, here's what I'm going to do. I want to read 9 through 11. I want to explain what's happening in 9 through 11. Then I'm going to work through it carefully. So let me read to you 9 through 11. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is working through three very important theological words for you. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so these are really three overarching terms in the New Testament you need to know about. And I want to define each of these for you. Justification. This is the legal standing before God. Guilty or not guilty. And so Paul clearly is going to tell us in verse 9, we're going to get to this, that your justification, if you stand on your own works, you're guilty. If you stand on your own law, if you stand on the law of the land, you're guilty. That's justification. But if you stand on Christ and his atoning work, innocent. Sanctification. This one's a hard one to define because it's what we call the already not yet. That for those of you in Christ, you are justified by God and yet you are being made like Christ. So I want to tell you, maybe you don't trust church Maybe this is the same old, same old for you, because guess what you've seen? You've seen the church really mess up, and I say, yes. And listen, I want, and I'm not going to call anyone out, but I want to tell you, if you are in here, and you got burnt out by the morality and speaks of law and doing the right thing, and never heard the gospel that Christ loves you, that Christ put himself on a cross in order to save you, and that was his purpose, I want you to know that's what this church is about. We don't care about anything else but knowing, do you know that there's a God who wants you? And he wants you to know his great love. And no amount of law or changing of the culture is ever going to get that, only the word of God. And so, yes, we are imperfect people. And yes, I'm going to mess up often. But the beautiful thing about sanctification is God says, and I've paid for that. Keep going. And then we have glorification. That when you die, you appear before God. For those of you in Christ, for those of you in Christ, you appear before God. Perfect. Let us look at verse 9 together. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. No amount of law will ever save you. It will never give you power. It will only condemn you. It is the power of Christ that justifies you. It's the power of Christ that makes you right. It's the power of Christ that is at work within all who believe. And so the question becomes, how can a perfect and holy God dwell with an imperfect people? And the answer is because the imperfect has to be destroyed. I have got to be destroyed so Christ can reign and rule in this messed up tent. 
And when Christ comes into my life, the only thing I desire to know in your life is simply this, is Christ Lord? And any other question is just secondary. Because when Christ comes in, you hate your old life and you love the things of Christ. So let me tell you about justification for just a moment. I want to stop here because a lot of people will say, if you preach grace, love, and mercy and don't preach obedience, people are going to go and accept Christ and do whatever they want. If you preach the gospel right, people are no longer going to be like their old self. They're going to want to be like Christ. And that's what sanctification is. Verse 10 through 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It is impossible to know God outside of Christ. It is impossible to know Christ outside of God. It is impossible to know God's love for you outside of his hate for sin. God hated sin and death so much, he sent his perfect, spotless, holy son to die the death you deserved. And when he died, he says, come follow me. Um, I was thinking through this this week. I was thinking through Christ, knowing Christ And I started to go back and look at all the famous stories you really know in the Old Testament. And I started to realize, do you see Christ on every page in the Old Testament? Do you realize that Christ is the animal skins that covered Adam and Eve in Genesis 3? Do you realize that Christ is the rock that Moses whacked in order to get water flowing to the people. Do you know that Christ is the lamb who was slain and put on the doorpost so that sin and death would go over all those who were covered by the blood? Do you know that Christ is like Samson when he went up and he took up those gates and he marched into victory, that that is Christ. When he died, he went, he picked up hell's gates and he says, no power over my people. That do you know that Christ is the one who is in every single page of every single death of any animal? That Christ is the Joshua who leads his people into the promised land. Do you know Christ this morning? Moments before he was betrayed, he fell on what we call the rock of agony. Luke says his sweats was like blood. And we don't know if Luke literally means he sweat blood or if they were just big drops of blood. But we do know that he agonized on that rock of agony. And let me tell you something, church. He was not agonizing over the whips that would tear the skin off his back. He was not agonizing over the thorns that would be smushed onto his head and then rotated around. He was not agonizing over the nails being driven into his wrists and his feet. He was not agonizing as he would slowly suffocate. The reason why Christ was agonizing, because listen to me, he was not afraid of a little tiny Roman cross. 
He was agonizing because the wrath of God itself, the punishment for your sins and my sins, would be poured upon him. Our our Savior was agonizing because he was going to pay the price. What it would take us an eternity in hell to pay for, it was going to take him six hours. And on those six hours, he took it. And then Luke tells us he relented his spirit. He gave up his spirit and he died. No one took his life from him. He gave it freely. All according to the father's plan. He yelled, it is finished. He was buried. Three days later, he was resurrected. He walked out of that tomb, rolled away that stone with victory in your hand and mine because of his resurrection. And I think so often, I think so often as we read and as we um, listen to the trash news, I think so often we just miss this beautiful gospel that the victory has been won. And if you are against him, lay down your swords this morning and come to him. Man, if you don't know Christ this morning, push anyone who's talking to me out of the way and says, I need to know. If you want to talk to someone a whole lot smarter than me, Seth is going to be around. If you want to talk to someone smarter than Seth, Mark will be around. Man, we need you to know that your good works are going to condemn you. And you're right, it's not fair. But that's the amazing grace. Let's pray. Father God, so often, so often we miss. We miss the beauty of the gospel because of whatever, because of busyness, because of ignorance, arrogance whatever the case may be. But God, the gospel is our only hope. Christ is our only hope, and that's what we celebrate in. It's a simple message with a complex understanding. Christ died for me. We pray these things. Amen.